At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. I'm Alex Helmick, Managing Editor of WABE News. And then on this episode of The Week in Review, we start with the ongoing saga over the proposed Atlanta Police Training Center, the so-called Cop City. The city of Atlanta reached an agreement with DeKalb this week to begin construction of the $90 million, 85-acre training facility that would be built on property owned by the city in unincorporated DeKalb County. The construction permit issued by DeKalb County includes roughly 300 acres of land for trails, ball fields, and picnic areas for the public. Meanwhile, dozens of protesters gathered outside City Hall during the announcement on Tuesday, calling on Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens to resign. It comes as protests against the so-called Cop City have intensified following the fatal shooting of an environmental activist who authorities say shot a state trooper during a raid at the proposed site. A day later, Dickens doubled down that the proposed training site is intended to reduce violent crime. WABE's Shemaine Cruz told us about it. Dickens held a roundtable discussion with reporters on Wednesday after announcing the day before that the so-called Cop City would be moving forward. Despite protests, Dickens says they have not delayed construction and accused protesters of not presenting enough facts to back up their claims about environmental concerns. Disingenuous for me never mention the word fire department to be able to constantly talk about police and then others that will talk about environmental concerns when they burn tires out there. You can't be a good environmentalist if you burn tires uh, and let that Dickens also says the threat of Buckhead City has not played a role in building the training facility. The fact is, a public safety training center will be for training police officers and firefighters and the community for the whole city, not just for Buckhead. While many activists also oppose spending so much money on a training facility that would be surrounded by poor, majority black neighborhoods, Dickens says he believes the community's relationship with Atlanta police has improved in the last year. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. And you can get much more coverage, including a timeline of events from this very complicated story at wabe.org slash South River Forest. wabe.org slash South River Forest. Well, let's jump to the state capitol where some interesting moves kicked off this week, including a bill moving through the legislature that would allow the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to soon independently investigate terrorism cases. Emily Wu Pearson brought us that story. Senate Bill 11 is called the Georgia Fights Terrorism Act. It allows GBI to solely investigate terrorism cases or along with local agencies. 
These cases include domestic, cyber, biological, chemical, and nuclear terrorism. And the bill was originally part of the recently passed bipartisan anti-gang legislation. Some high-profile terrorism cases awaiting trial in the state include the Fulton County trial of Robert Aaron Long, who faces domestic terrorism charges, along with felony murder and others, for killing four Asian women in Atlanta spas. And more than a dozen protesters arrested in the forest of Atlanta's planned public safety training facility who were charged with domestic terrorism after various altercations with public safety officials. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And a bill to ban state agencies from requiring employees and students to be vaccinated for COVID-19 is also moving through the legislature. Jess Mador reported that story. The bill's provisions have already been in effect since last year. The state enacted a temporary ban on vaccine mandates that was set to expire by the end of June. Now the Senate Health and Human Services Committee is sending a bill to make the ban permanent onto the full Senate. The legislation is sponsored by Republican Senator Greg Dolezal. It would prohibit local government, schools, and state agencies from mandating proof of vaccination. It allows acceptance for people working or contracting with the federal government. Medical associations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, have come out against the bill. They say it would hamper the state's public health efforts during the pandemic. Jess Mador, WABE News. Well, earlier in the week, lawmakers at the Capitol had a Mental Health Awareness Day. Georgia has long lagged other states when it comes to mental health and substance abuse resources. But in recent years, that started to change, thanks specifically to support from top state lawmakers. WABE's Jim Burris spoke to Jeff Breedlove, the chief of policy for the Georgia Council for Recovery, and Kim Jones, executive director of Georgia's National Alliance for Mental Illness, about the legislative priorities advocates have established for this session. Well, you know, this session is going to be a great emphasis on the workforce. So we're going to look at legislation we anticipate coming down in the next couple of days to address having a peer a positive workforce, and that's a workforce that has peers involved, that is peer-friendly, and that has to be funding that's keeping up with the increase in the medical cases that are arising in behavioral health post-COVID. Talk more about that. What does um, peer-friendly look like? What does that mean? We need our doctors and our nurses and our clinicians and our psychiatrists and psychologists. We need all of those voices. But the uniqueness of this disease is the peer voice needs to be there in the discussion and the decisions. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I can assure you that when I went to treatment, we respected all of the clinicians that were there to help us. But the ones that we really related to and listened to and trusted were the peers that were on staff. And what's the barrier to that? Is it a law or something that's preventing what we've learned is um, there was a study done that was a part of House Bill 1013 last year to look at what we pay here in Georgia for Medicaid. And the Medicaid payments for mental health are extremely low, anywhere between 25 to 45 percent lower than our surrounding states. So what we see happening is, one, our beds are being taken up by people from out of the state of Georgia because other states, such as Florida, are paying twice as much as what we pay here in the state of Georgia. That's also happening with our workforce. 
people are choosing to go to cash basis only because the Medicaid payment that's paid by the state here for Medicaid is so low that it's more advantageous for many of our clinicians to just sometimes not take insurance at all and go to cash base only. What about Medicaid expansion? We hear about it so much. Is that something that would help in this regard? Uh, let me just say this. You know, we have been very blessed to work with Governor Kemp, and we understand the governor's publicly stated policy on that. We're asking the General Assembly to work within the reality that's down here at the Capitol. So, you know, there are things that we can expand that, that don't have to be as broad as that. We can expand, for example, statewide trauma-informed training. We can expand the use of recovery community organizations. So there's lots of ways to get what we all want within the confines of, of, of what the governor is willing to sign and not sign into law. I, my last question kind of deals with the broader picture and the broader scope, and that's the notion of stigma. Um, you can't really put a price tag on stigma, but you still have to combat it. Talk about um, the drive for that. So there is stigma in the Capitol. There is, there is stigma at county commission meetings, and there is stigma at city halls. But the good news for Georgians is that there every day alliances are being built with another sheriff, another doctor, another state senator, member of Congress. So Georgia is moving in the right direction to shatter stigma, and we're building alliances all over the state of, of recovery warriors and champions. That was WAB's Jim Burris with Jeff Breedlove, the Chief of Policy for the Georgia Council for Recovery, and Kim Jones, Executive Director of Georgia's National Alliance for Mental Illness. You're listening to WAB's Week in Review with me, Alex Helmick. You can get more wabe.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Well, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp is emphasizing his pledge to make the state the electric mobility capital of America. At the state capitol this week, Kemp celebrated the first recent automaker to set roots in the state, Kia. And he said even more cars, many of them electric, will be rolling off assembly lines in Georgia soon. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass told us about it. It's been over a dozen years since a plant north of Columbus started pumping out Kia Sorentos. Right now, Kia only makes gas-powered cars in Georgia. But Kia Georgia president Stuart Countess says that first plant helped set Georgia's growing EV industry in motion. The automotive industry is rapidly changing, with Georgia quickly becoming a center point of change. 
Kia's parent company, Hyundai, is opening up a massive plant near Savannah to make EVs. Electric truck maker Rivian is also setting up shop, and EV battery plants are either already open or in the works. Kemp sees these developments as key parts of his legacy, but there's active debate over who should get credit. Kemp has reeled in billions of new investment with the help of massive state tax incentives. Democrats point to new federal tax incentives for EV makers and buyers in the Inflation Reduction Act. Kemp and Hyundai have groused about federal tax credits only being available for consumers of American-made new cars. The EV makers and automakers were coming to Georgia before the last round of federal incentives. So I think us having a market-based approach here where we're putting our money into workforce and having a good business environment is working. So that's you know more of the same for me on that regard. Lawmakers are also weighing what to do about regulations related to EV fees and charging stations. Kemp says he doesn't have a position on the various proposals right now. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Well, state lawmakers are again trying to legalize online sports betting in Georgia. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali told us the latest bill at the Capitol is part of the bigger fight over expanding gambling across the state. Republican State Senator Billy Hickman of Statesboro is the author of the bipartisan bill that would put online sports betting under the Georgia lottery. Well, we all know that sports betting is ongoing everywhere now. Uh, it's, it's legal in Tennessee and some other states. Hickman says licensing fees and a 20% cut of the bets would bring in hundreds of millions of dollars for programs under the Georgia lottery, specifically pre-K. Mike Griffin with the Georgia Baptist Mission Board says the end cannot justify the means. Because it's going to create more problems than they're trying to correct, either by attempting to regulate it, attempting to tax it, uh, attempting to make it legal because they say people are already doing it. That cannot become a standard for why certain moral vices ought to be legalized or not. Griffin says expanding gambling could worsen mental health, addiction, and crime, increasing the cost for government. This proposal does not include a voter referendum to amend the state constitution. That could become a flashpoint as opponents believe any expansion of gambling must be approved by voters. Hickman says he focused on sports betting but does not support casino gambling. There is a reference to horse racing in his bill. Democrats may have a role as Republicans will likely need their votes to pass most gambling legislation. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. A recent AJC poll says residents here are feeling good about the way Georgia elections are run. But does the sampling capture what voters, especially people of color, are really feeling about the system? On this week's snippet of Political Breakfast, Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson gave their interpretation of the numbers. What I zeroed in on was that 99% of voters said they had no trouble voting. 99%. And right now, we're being sued by the Department of Justice for our election law, called SB202, for specifically suppressing black voters. And we hear who we have, black voters speaking for themselves saying, no, nah, no, nah, I voted just fine. There were no barriers. Nothing, nothing held me back. So I think this poll clearly shows to me two things. And I'm going to start with Democrats. We've got to make sure that we listen very closely to what the Republicans are saying. And Brian just illustrated it, right? They want 
Georgia, particularly Republican leadership, to not be attacked for trying to rig elections or make it harder for people to vote, particularly black and brown people. And so when it comes to the issue around having the proper identification, making sure that people understand how to vote absentee, to vote early, to vote by mail, we've got to continue the education process. Now, the last thing is what Brian mentioned is the Department of Justice, right? And I don't necessarily agree that everyone quoted in this article who actually took this poll are the quote unquote uh, affected people. Um, there are still people out there that probably did not participate in this poll that can illustrate some challenges that they've had at the voting booth. And so I think that it is left up to the federal government now if they are going to continue this case to make sure that they have the evidence and they have the witnesses and they're able to articulate why this lawsuit has merit. That was our Political Breakfast team. Get more from the podcast by subscribing or checking it out at wabe.org. Finally today, it's been 11 days since the public last heard from the judge or prosecutors overseeing Fulton County's investigation into attempted interference with the 2020 election result. At a hearing last week, District Attorney Fonnie Willis had said her decision on seeking criminal charges was imminent. Judge Robert McBurney is weighing whether to release the findings of the special grand jury tasked with investigating efforts by former President Donald Trump and others to undermine Georgia's election result. Prosecutors want the jury's final report to stay under wraps for now. It may include recommendations for criminal charges. McBurney ended last week's hearing saying he wouldn't make any rash decisions, and he hasn't so far taking 11 days. I want to thank the WAB News team and all of you for subscribing to the Week in Review podcast. I'm Alex Helmick. Thanks for listening.